this month's Archimedes, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, where we take clinical cases, look for the best evidence that sits behind the clinical dilemma that's been proposed, appraise that evidence to see how good or poor it is, and then bring it all together to a clinical conclusion. We also add a bit of extra goodness about how you might practice medicine in an evidence-based fashion with our critical appraisal notes. And sometimes these are deeply insightful and give you a real way of making things move forwards. Other times they're like we've got this month. As we bang on about almost endlessly in Archimedes, we know that evidence is only part of a clinical decision. The story also includes that of the patient and their family, and the sharing of that decision is the key to good medicine. We've talked about this on this podcast and published about it quite a bit now. But there is the third leg to this, the clinician expertise section. Now, in the simplest iterations of explaining evidence-based medicine, we give examples of things like surgical skills. If you haven't got surgical skills, you shouldn't be doing an appendectomy, for example, even if it's the evidence-based right thing to do. Or technical access. So if you don't have an MRI scan, you can't use an MRI scan to stage something. But those are really a very low level of understanding where the clinical expertise part of the tripod comes in. Real life isn't so simple. We know that the same data may be read in multiple ways and clinical experience may well be swayed by prior experience. For example, if you were one of the tally-ho brigade for hypertonic saline in bronchiolitis and then saw the results of the Sabre trial that demonstrated that it made really very little difference within the UK setting, if any at all, then you might be less tempted to follow the recommendations of a systematic review that comes along and says something else is brilliant. Uh, For example, probiotics to stop antibiotic-associated diarrhoea. The evaluation of the way that we look at data and think about the choices will then lead on to how we present that information to families and then the way that they take that on forwards. I mean, we may be the sorts of people who are keen to offer low-level laser therapy for mucositis, a complication of chemotherapy. Or we may be one of the reluctant ones that really wants to look at another trial of STS to prevent hearing loss in cisplatin chemotherapy. Because despite the fact that it's not significant, those changes in overall survival and relapse rate look a little bit concerning. We are all aware that the correct answer will emerge but that might take five years to come out, and that's not going to help us making the decision right now. So how do we defend against that? Well, what we can do is we can think about what are our influences that are making us lead one way or the other. And the evidence-based process asks us to think in an explicit and transparent way about the judgments we make. We can bring this together in order to make sure that we are aware of our inherent biases and that the decisions that we make right now are defensible, sensible, and not daft. The first of our case reports comes from Dr Lagan and Balfi of the Department of Developmental Paediatrics in Dublin. They're talking about a parent of a child who has an autistic spectrum disorder who has significant behavioural problems at seven years old and the parent comes in asking about the use of chelation therapy. They've been looking extensively at the use of uh, complementary and alternative medicines approaches. Now, you hadn't really heard of this and went away and did an extensive search on Cochrane and PubMed trying to find something about this idea. 
There were 49 possible hits, of which only four were relevant, and within that, just a single randomised controlled trial uh, that was included in a Cochrane review of one randomised controlled trial. Now, I wondered about this, and the theory is that um, if, for some uh, uh, studies, if they look at children with ASD and people with ASDs, autistic spectrum disorders, they find that the levels of heavy metal um, seem to be higher in those patients than in the control groups that they picked. And certainly mercury poisoning in the olden days um, led to some symptoms that were similar to those of autistic spectrum disorders. And so a theory developed that it was related to levels of heavy metals. Chelation is the pharmacological agents giving to to chelate, to to, to hold down um, the heavy metals and allow them to be um, expelled. I mean, we do chelation with iron um, when you've got patients that are overloaded. Um, So there's a sort of idea that sits behind it. Now, the agent that gets used is DMSA. Um, and that in itself can lead to very severe and profound side effects. The group looked to find um, a report of three deaths related to heavy metal chelation therapy between 2003 and 2005 in the USA. Now, when it came to the evidence of efficacy, there's a small trial of only 45 patients that shows no significant difference in symptom reports between those who got the chelation therapy and those who got placebo um, and undertook a very large number of assessments um, which always leads to uh, an uncertainty around fishing for potential interactions and problems if you cut things in enough way stuff will come out there was also a pilot study um, looking at giving chelation therapy to see if it did anything and what they showed was it reduced the heavy metals um, that were found in the patients and, and seemed to produce the symptoms on one particular questionnaire approach but the authors conclude that given the really significant problems that you can get with heavy metal chelation therapy and the lack of evidence of efficacy that chelation is not an approach that they would recommend to parents or people with autistic spectrum disorders. Our second case is also a rare condition, but rare for a different reason. Joe Monaheim, a medical student at the University of Cambridge in the UK, has brought us a case of infant botulism. Now this was diagnosed in the paediatric intensive care unit after a child that presented with typical sort of meningitis septis symptoms and got full supportive care didn't seem to wake up when they removed all of the sedation and everything else on the far side. It was diagnosed around nine days after being admitted and there was consideration then given to given a specific anti toxin. As I'm sure you'll remember, because I didn't, botulism works by the production of a specific toxin that goes in and stops the muscles working, leading to paralysis, and ultimately, in its untreated state, death in around half the patients affected. With mechanical ventilation, then the actual mortality rate has fallen to really something very low, somewhere around the 2 to 3% level. Uh, and a specific antitoxin can help not so much change the mortality but change the patterns of the length of paralysis and so the length of hospitalisation and the disabilities associated with that. And so Joe went away and looked at Cochrane and PubMed and searched through an awful lot of references to bring back nine particularly relevant studies looking at the use of antitoxins. Now the antitoxins come in two main flavours. There's a human derived antitoxin um, called Baby Big which is only available from California and an equine derived antitoxin that is primarily been used in adults but is really very quickly and widely available. 
The sorts of disadvantages of an equine antitoxin would be those of giving any sort of xenogenic substance. So you get the the sort of the, the anti-horse uh, serum sickness type effects, whereas the human one is thought to be less problematic from that angle. Now, the actual question that was being asked was, which is quicker? Is it better to wait for the human stuff to be shipped from California, or is it better to go in earlier with the equine stuff? Of those studies that he found, not one of them was a head-to-head comparative large RCT, unsurprisingly. But what they did find was an actual RCT looking at the effect of the baby pig against the found that using the specific led to roughly half the time in hospital. There were further cohort studies of 67 and 44 patients using the humanised immunoglobulin that found similar sorts of ideas. There was only one study looking at the equine one um, with 49 infants treated with the equine antitoxin and they didn't see any particularly serious side effects given this but it is a relatively small number and the efficacy that they came up with was roughly the same as the more specialist human antitoxin. The conclusion that they reach is that both appear to be effective and that it has to be a decision made around the individual patient at the individual time as to whether it's early enough that you think that waiting for the human version to arrive from California is a reasonable thing to do or if you really need the speed but it is completely reasonable to use the human-derived antitoxin as there appear to be no major side effects against this. Well... Archimedes of the Ultra Unusual this month. Maybe you too want to send in an Archimedes of something that you only vaguely remember from the back of your medical student years. Maybe you want to send in something that happens every day, like the prednisolone and asthma one. There's all sorts of things that you can think of. Follow the instructions on the website, submit your Archimedeses to the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, and you too could be having your surname mispronounced on a podcast near you. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.